It's the most popular teaching on Christian television today. It's called the Word Faith Movement. But is it biblical? What do the Word Faith teachers believe? And why are so many people believing it? Welcome to Evidence and Answers with Dr. Pat Zucharin. Pat Zucharin is an author, speaker, and Christian apologist who speaks all over the world presenting the good news of Jesus Christ. At a recent conference in Hawaii, Pat Zucharin asked Dr. Ron Rhodes to analyze the Word Faith Movement. Today, you'll hear part one of that presentation. And it's crucial resources like these that we offer at evidenceandanswers.org. Pat's articles, books, interviews with leading scholars, and past programs available for download on everything from atheism to Zen Buddhism, all at evidenceandanswers.org. That's evidenceandanswers.org. We're going to be talking about the Word Faith Movement, and uh, it's a very important uh, topic to understand, I think, uh, primarily because this is one of the groups that's getting so much television exposure around the world. Uh, TBN is not just uh, in the United States, but really goes global. I want to begin by emphasizing that it's a movement, not a single cult. The reason I say that is it's not led by any single leader, but it is a movement with a number of different leaders, and some of them have certain distinctive emphases that some of the others may not necessarily have. There's also a spectrum of what you might call orthodoxy versus non-orthodoxy, and you've got different churches that are at different points along that spectrum. Some are closer to orthodoxy, some are further from orthodoxy. Now, some of the major leaders on TV, people like Benny Hinn, Kenneth Copeland, the late Kenneth Hagan, these are individuals that have many un biblical ideas that have been expressed on quite a few occasions, other word faith leaders may not teach some of those doctrines. They may or may not. And so you've got a variety of different word faith teachers out there, and I think it would be unfair of me to make a blanket statement that's true of all of them. I want to be careful about that. I want to be fair in this. No single word faith leader subscribes to virtually all the particular problem doctrines I'm going to cover today. But here's what I'm going to do. For the sake of discernment, Today's session will focus on some of the big problems in the movement without implying that every person in the movement holds to each of these ideas. Does that make sense? It's a good policy to follow. We're going to try to be as representative as we can. I'm also going to play some clips for you. Uh, Every once in a while I run into people who say, oh, they don't believe that. Well, I've got plenty of clips to show that indeed they do believe that. Uh, Let's start off by talking about the origins of the movement. There are some who have studied the movement and said that primarily the word faith movement emerged exclusively from the metaphysical groups. The guy you see on the screen is Phineas P. Quimby. Uh, His writings gave rise to what's called the New Thought Movement. And then out of the New Thought Movement grew a number of metaphysical churches, such as the Unity School of Christianity and Religious Science and Christian Science. One of the big deals with the New Thought Movement is what's called the Law of Attraction. Some of you have heard of this recent book that Oprah Winfrey has promoted called The Secret. And The Secret talks about this new discovery of the law of attraction. Well, it's not new. It's been around for a very long time. And in fact, back in the 1800s, Phineas Quimby talked about the law of attraction, which says that if you have positive thoughts, you're going to have positive results in your life. If you have negative thoughts, you're going to bring about negative uh, circumstances in your life. That's the law of attraction. And so you can see how that's related to positive confession, this idea that you can speak forth your situation. If you want to have a, a big fat wallet, just speak to your wallet, words of wealth, that kind of an idea. And so the metaphysical groups very much played a role here, but uh, there are other people who have studied the movement, and they feel that uh, it's rooted in some of the uh, faith healing that came about after the Azusa Street revival. You know, the idea that um, healing is guaranteed in the atonement, that every Christian should be healed and have no disease. And then there are still others who say that perhaps both of these uh, account for the origin of the word faith movement, both the metaphysical groups as well as the, uh, the early faith healing following the Azusa Street Revival. And I think that's probably the most balanced position. 
E.W. Kenyon is a name that you need to be familiar with. I remember I just became a Christian. I just became a Christian and walked into a Christian bookstore, and there was a bunch of books by E.W. Kenyon. Now, I didn't uh, have much knowledge back then. I was a young Christian, and uh, you know, I'd only been maybe a Christian about a month by the time I walked into this uh, bookstore and started picking up some of the E.W. Kenyon's books and just flipping through them right there in the store. And even as a young Christian with hardly any learning, uh, I saw to myself, you know, this doesn't seem right. Some of this stuff doesn't seem right. I think I'm not going to buy these books. And indeed, uh, I, was, I was on target. These books are just way off and have a number of ideas that are foreign to biblical Christianity. He is responsible for some of the doctrines and terms used in the movement today. For example, he says that God created the world through his own faith. He is a faith being. God speaks forth words of faith to bring about the universe. At the fall, Kenyon says that human beings took on the nature of Satan. Jesus died spiritually, allegedly, taking on Satan's nature himself, with the implication that he lost God's nature at the same time. And then finally, he taught that we can use positive confession to bring about health and wealth. And so very clearly, uh, we might say that E.W. Kenyon is the grandfather of the movement. He is responsible for some of the terms and some of the doctrines. However, the word faith movement goes far beyond Kenyon. Kenyon did not believe that God has a body. I want to be careful here. Uh, Kenneth Hagin says that God has a spiritual body, but Kenneth Copeland goes further than that and implies that God actually has a physical body, that God is a being very much like you and I. Kenyon did not speak of humans as little gods, as you see Benny Hinn does and Paul Crouch and others. Kenyon's views on prosperity are also much more tame much more moderate. So even though Kenyon had a lot to do with the movement, the, uh, the movement itself went far beyond his teachings. The role of Kenneth Hagin is pivotal. This was the uh, father of the movement. Kenyon was the grandfather. Hagin is the father. He claimed to be the teacher and prophet to the church for the last revival prior to the second coming. Now, in all my cultic studies, I've got to tell you, I hear this one all the time. There are so many groups out there whose leader claims to be the last great prophet to the church. Now, my thinking, uh, uh, Hagen is no different. He claimed to be receiving new revelations from God, which he put into his books, but subsequent studies have have proven that he uh, borrowed very heavily. He plagiarized from Kenyon and called them new revelations from God. And so uh, that's a matter of intellectual dishonesty. Let's take a look at some of the primary beliefs of the movement, and this will give you a good handle on what many of them believe. First of all, word faith anointed leaders claim that they should not be publicly And often they will go to Psalm 105.15, which says, Do not touch my anointed ones, do my prophets no harm. They claim that people can get sick, get cancer, if they criticize them. I remember when uh, Walter Martin died. These guys got on the TV and said, God killed Walter Martin because of criticizing the Word Faith Movement. I took that kind of personally. You know, Walter was a friend of mine. And uh, I was uh, helping him prepare for his last debate, you know, the, uh, the, the week before he died. And to hear these guys come out and talk like that on television, so misrepresenting things, that was bothersome to me. But listen to what Kenneth Copeland says. Several people that I know had criticized and called that faith bunch out of Tulsa a cult. And some of them are dead right today in an early grave because of it. And there's more than one of them got cancer. Now, aside from his bad grammar, that's just bad theology. The idea that God's taking people out who have measured teachings against the Word of God like Walter Martin has done. Number two, reason does not play a major role. Reason does not play a major role. Now you see a little chart, and the spirit is in the middle, and then outside of that is the soul, and then the body. Humans are trichotomous, being body, soul, and spirit, according to most word faith teachers. 
The spirit is said to be the real person. That's the part of you that's created in the image of God. That's the part of you that can communicate with God. That is the part of you that hears from God. And ideally, the, the word faith teachers say that the spirit is to rule the body through the soul. In the soul is where the mind is. That's where reason is. So the spirit is supposed to influence your reason, your mind, which subsequently influences your body. We are not supposed to listen to reason. For example, if in your mind you think, I'm feeling sick, I should go to the doctor, do not listen to that. You should listen only to your spirit, which is in communication with God. You shouldn't listen to the body. If you feel uh, the side of your uh, belly and you feel a big tumor growing in there, you should ignore that. You don't listen to your body. You listen to the spirit, which rules over reason, which then rules over the body. This is very important to understanding the word-faith system of theology. Three, God has a physical body. Now let me qualify that. Hagen says that God has a spirit body. It looks just like a normal man, only it's spirit. Hagen goes further than that. And they often appeal to Isaiah 40, verse 12. Who has measured the waters in the hollow of his hand, or with the breadth of his hand marked off the heavens? Who has held the dust of the earth in a basket, or weighed the mountains on the scales and the hills in a balance? And so instead of taking this as a, an anthropomorphism, Hagen takes this quite literally. If he's got a hand, if he's got a hand, then he's very much like you and I. Now let me just play you a couple of clips here. Bible said he measured the heavens with a nine-inch span. Now the span is the difference, distance between the end of the thumb and the end of the little finger. And, and that Bible said, in fact, the Amplified Translation translates the Hebrew text that way, that he measured out the heavens with a nine-inch span. Well, I got a ruler and measured mine, and my span's eight and three-quarter inches long. So now God's span is a quarter of inch and a quarter inch longer than mine. So you see, that faith didn't come billowing out of some giant monster somewhere. It came out of the heart of a being that is very uncanny the way he's very much like you and me. Isn't that amazing? Listen to this one. Heaven has a north and a south and an east and a west. Consequently, it must be a planet. You see, God has a body, a physical body, that lives on the mother planet. He expands on that here. This is all a copy. It's a copy of home. It's a copy of the mother planets. Where God lives, he made a little one just like here and put us on. You heard it here. <laughs> Number four, God is a faith being. God is a faith being. Uh, in word faith theology, faith is a power or force that is activated through the agency of the spoken word. God is like man in the sense that he is a being of faith. He created the world by speaking forth words of faith. He does everything by speaking words of faith. He brings about change in the universe by speaking words of faith because those words of faith release the energy of faith. Typically, they cite Hebrews 11.3 to show that God is a faith being. By faith, we understand that the universe was formed at God's command so that what is seen was not made out of what was visible. In other words, the way they interpret this is, by faith, God brought about the universe. They're not saying, by trusting in God's revelation, we understand with our minds that God created the universe. That's not what they're saying. They're saying that by speaking forth words of faith, God brought about the universe. Now that just shows you the kind of scripture twisting that goes on. So word faith proponents say that faith is the means that God used to create the universe. Moreover, they go on to say that man was created as an exact duplicate 
of God. Human beings are little gods. Humans exist in God's class, even though on a smaller scale, maybe a little g, but nevertheless they are gods. Uh, like New Agers and Mormons, they will appeal to John 10:34 in support of this, where Jesus said, ye are gods. Moreover, in Genesis 1, 26 and 27, we find out that uh, human beings were created in the image of God. And according to Jerry Savell, that means that we are an exact duplication in kind with God. Kenneth Hagin put it this way, man was created on terms of equality with God, and he could stand in God's presence without any consciousness of inferiority. God has made us as much like himself as possible. He made us in the same class of being that he is himself. Our potential as little gods, however, was thwarted by the fall. We lost our status, and that was what Jesus restored by not only his work on the cross, but going down into hell to be beat up for three days and uh, we're going to talk about that in just a moment. But let me just play you a couple of clips here to illustrate all this. God's reason for creating Adam was his desire to reproduce himself. I mean a reproduction of himself. And in the Garden of Eden, he did that. He was not a little like God. He was not almost like God. He was not um, subordinate to God even. And Adam is as much like God as you could get. Just the same as Jesus, when he came into the earth, he said, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. He wasn't a lot like God. He's God manifested in the flesh. And I want you to know something. Adam in the Garden of Eden was God manifested in the flesh. My, my, my. God came from heaven, became a man, made man into little gods, went back to heaven as a man. He faces the Father as a man. I face devils as the Son of God. You see what I'm talking about? You say, Benihim, am I a little God? You're a son of God, aren't you? You're a child of God, aren't you? You're a daughter of God, aren't you? What, what else are you? Quit your nonsense. What else are you? If you say, I am, you're saying, I'm a part of him, right? Is he God? Yes. Are you his offspring? Yes. Are you his children? Yes. You can't be human. Yes. May I say it like this? You are a little God on earth running around. When you say, I'm a Christian, you're saying, I am Mashiach in the Hebrew. I'm a little Messiah walking on earth, in other words. He doesn't even draw a distinction between himself and... Never, never. You never can do that in a covenant relationship. Do you know what else that's settled then tonight? This hue and cry and controversy that has been spawned by the devil to try and bring dissension within the body of Christ, that we're gods. I am a little god. Yes. Yes. I have his name. I'm one with him. I'm in covenant relation. I am a little god. Critics, you are anything that he is, yes. Well, so there you have it. I mean, this is obviously very heretical theology, promulgated on the largest Christian network in the world on a global basis. They go on to teach that at the fall, man committed high treason against God and took on the nature of Satan. Here's the backdrop. Adam was the original God of this world. He had authority to speak by, uh, or to rule by speaking words. And by speaking those words, he would release the force of faith. But then he fell into sin. And as a result of that, he committed high treason against God which ended up resulting in giving legal dominion of this earth to Satan. 
And so at that point, Satan became the god of this world. Christ came to do away with the situation. Christ's suffering in hell overcame Satan and restored man as little gods. Now, the backdrop is this. First, we need to get Jesus into the earth before the, the, the rescue can take place. So, Jesus was brought into the world via positive confession in order to solve man's dilemma. And whose positive confession was it? It was the Father's. I'm going to read this to you. Uh, this is not uh, something that every word faith teacher believes, but uh, Kenneth Copeland, one of the primary leaders, teaches it. Before Jesus came to earth, God spoke his word and then spoke his word again. How many times did he say the Messiah was coming? It was prophesied over hundreds, even thousands of years. He kept saying, he is coming, he is coming. The circumstances in the earth made it look as if there was no way he could accomplish it, but he just kept saying it. He would not be moved by what he saw. God would not relent. So in other words, God kept on speaking positive confession through the prophets, which ultimately resulted in Jesus being born through the womb of Mary. And just think about that. What does that say about God being sovereign? What does that say about God being the almighty ruler? What does that even say about Jesus Christ as eternal deity? All kind of questions come up when you think about the implications of this. Number eight, when Jesus died, he died physically and spiritually, which means that Jesus took upon himself the nature of Satan. Now here's how it happened. Man was created as a little god. Man forfeited this at the fall and thereby took on the nature of Satan. To correct this, Jesus came, died spiritually, taking on Satan's nature, suffered in hell, was then born again with the nature of God again, rose from the dead, and sent the Holy Spirit. Hence, because of all of this, the incarnation can now be duplicated in believers. We can become little gods. That spirit dwelling within us makes us God incarnate, and therefore we are little gods. They also appealed to 2 Corinthians 5.21. God made him who had no sin to be sin for us, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. They take that as meaning, God made him who knew no sin to be sin for us, taking on the nature of Satan, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God, and ultimately little gods. They also appeal to Isaiah 53, verse 9. He was assigned a grave with the wicked, the text tells us, and with the rich in his death. Though he had done no violence, nor was any deceit in his mouth. In the Hebrew, the word death is plural. So word faith teachers say that Jesus died twice, physically and spiritually. The spiritual death involved Jesus taking on the nature of Satan, with the implication that he gave up the nature of God. As Charles Capps put it, the sinless Son of God became as a serpent. So he ontologically changed. Jesus then accomplished our redemption in hell. Frederick Price said, Satan and the demons of hell threw a net over Jesus and they dragged him down to the very pit of hell itself to serve our sentence. That uh, theologian Jan Crouch says the burnt offerings in the Old Testament are types of Christ when Jesus went to hell and suffered the burning of hell. I cannot imagine theology much worse than this. By the way, I hope you understand I was putting theologian in quote marks. Okay. Uh, let me play a couple of clips uh, that really illustrate where they're coming from on all this. Satan was seated on his throne with a thickening grin on his face, his lip twisted in grotesque triumph, and all the imps of hell were dancing a jig. And the word came, we got him now, 
We've defeated the plan of God. And the devil was sitting there saying, I told you, if you'd follow me, I'd lead you to victory. We got him now. And they wrapped their grimy hands and the chains of hell itself around Jesus. And they consigned him to one of the cells in the Hades section of the underworld. And then Satan and his demon host went on a three-day drunk. They thought they had it. They had defeated and thwarted the plan of Almighty God. And Jesus sat there, as it were, immobile, not saying a word, not doing anything, except serving our sentence. Here's another one. Jesus had to go through that same spiritual death in order to pay the price. Now, it wasn't the physical death on the cross that paid the price for sin, because if it had been, any prophet of God that had died for the last couple of thousand years before that could have paid that price. It wasn't physical death. Anybody could do that. Blasphemy, just absolutely. Here's another. Why did he need to be begotten or born? Because he became like we were, separated from God. Because he tasted spiritual death for every man. And his spirit, an inner man, went to hell in my place. There's one more. Oh, I'm telling you, Jesus is in the middle of that pit. He's suffering the very base end punishment. He is suffering all that there is to suffer. There is no suffering left apart from him. His emaciated, poured out, little little wormy spirit is down in the bottom of that thing. And the devil thinks he's got him destroyed. But all of a sudden, God started talking. And when God starts talking, can't nobody get away from it. I mean, hell itself ain't far enough. It ain't deep enough and it ain't wide enough to keep the word of God from coming in there. Okay, well, there you have it. I mean, this is something that is so foreign. To the pages of Scripture, it's hard to get a radar fix on it. Uh, this idea about Jesus being born again is amazing. Jesus was born again in hell, according to uh, many word faith teachers. Charles Capp says that if there's any part of hell that Jesus did not suffer, you'll have to suffer it. But thank God, Jesus suffered it all for you. He goes on to say that Jesus was born again in hell, and is for that reason called the firstborn from the dead. The reference to Jesus being the firstborn from the dead is not the resurrection. It's, it's talking about being born again retaking the nature of God upon himself, that same nature that he gave up when he was dragged down into hell. Kenneth Copeland says that Jesus' twisted, death-wracked spirit began to fill out and come back to life. He was literally being reborn before the devil's very eyes, and he whipped the devil in his own backyard. As a result of what Christ accomplished for us, Christians are the ongoing incarnation of Jesus Christ. They truly are little gods. Here's the reasoning. The church is the body of Christ. Since the head, Christ, and the body, the church, are in complete unity, members of the church are ongoing incarnations of God. Christians are thus extensions of Christ, and as Frederick Price put it, God can't do anything in this earth realm except that we, the body of Christ, allow him to do. What does that do to the sovereignty of God? Over 70 times in Scripture, God is described as God Almighty. Such verses are meaningless in this kind of theology. Human beings can have God's kind of faith and call things into being. This is a central tenet of word faith theology. They typically go to Mark 11, verse 22, Have faith in God, Jesus answered. Word faith proponents translate this as, Have the faith of God, 
They believe that this is a subjective genitive. God is a subjective genitive, meaning that God is the subject who himself has faith. So the verse should be translated, have the faith of God. That is to say, you human beings should have God's kind of faith. And if you do, you can do the same kind of stuff that God does, calling things into being by the power of your words. Now, Benny Hinn teaches this. Kenneth Hagin taught it. Kenneth Copeland teaches it. Related to this, the key to success in life is positive confession, which stresses the inherent power of words and thoughts. You can create your own reality. You can predestine your future by saying verbally what you want to bring about. Again, I remind you, this is similar to the law of attraction in the New Thought Movement, which uh, came out of the writings of uh, Phineas P. Quimby. T.D. Jakes puts it this way, What do you want? Name it, baby. Name it. Declare it. Speak it. Confess it. Get your list out. Joel Lee Osteen, he says your words have enormous creative power. The moment you speak something out, you give birth to it. This is positive confession. Very similar to what we see in the metaphysical cults today. Well, we have run out of time for today, but we're going to continue next time with Dr. Ron Rhodes' evaluation of the Word Faith Movement. And by the way, you can get this entire series on the Word Faith Movement at evidenceandanswers.org. We appreciate you joining us for Evidence and Answers of Pat Zucran, and it's our hope to keep a quality program on the air and on the web that presents an intelligent response to the issues of our day and demonstrates the truth of the claims of Christ. If you agree, please support us with your prayers and gifts. One of the ways you can do that is by purchasing our resources available at evidenceandanswers.org. You can download past shows on everything from atheism to Zen Buddhism, read Pat's articles, and purchase Pat's new book with Dr. Norman Geisler, The Apologetics of Jesus, evidenceandanswers.org. That's evidenceandanswers.org. I'm Kevin Harris. Thanks again for listening. We'll see you next time.